I knew something was wrong as soon as I pulled up the truck. It's not that a pickup can't get a flat like any other car, but I'd been in the wrecker and tire repair business since I was a teenager, and just like anything else, you get to where you can see patterns of things. Some people tend to have dead batteries, others get into fender benders, and there's always those that come out to a tire that went flat over a day or two. But a blowout? A real tire blowout where the driver didn't hit anything? Those were rarer. And usually when it happened, it was some dumb kid that didn't pay attention to his tires or somebody without money to fix a bald one. The man who had called the 24-hour line for a new tire had seemed like neither. For one thing, he'd been ready with the tire model he needed right from the jump. The oddest part of that was that it was a tire we actually had in stock, which is rare for his truck tires. He didn't even act surprised or happy about it. Just told me what he needed like he knew I'd have to bring it. At the time, I just chalked it up to him being a dumbass. People always act shocked that we don't carry every part that they could ever want or need in some impossibly large warehouse out back. Just a minute, ma'am. Let me go 3D print you that new carburetor for your 10-year-old Honda. Or, you're in luck, sir. I bought that exact ignition switch a few years back just waiting for you to call. But, when my headlights passed across the side of the red truck that landed on the man propped against the door... I felt uneasy. This was a work truck, older but clearly heavily used and well-maintained, and the man himself looked to be in his 50s, wearing worn jeans and a crisp blue button-up shirt. My first thought was that he was probably a foreman or a contractor somewhere, and maybe a pretty successful one too. Getting out of my truck, I raised a hand to him and glanced at the truck's tires. I saw the flat immediately, but in the dim halo from my headlights... I was struck by the condition of the tire. It didn't look bald or threadbare at all. Glancing back at the man, I gave him a smile. Had one pop on you, yeah? Man grimaced and nodded. I did. Hell of a time for it, too. I returned his nod. Yeah, well. Mr. Trimble, I'm Pete. Good to meet you. Looking away awkwardly, I turned my flashlight as I squatted down by the tire. Looks like it's pretty new. Lots of tread left. I know on the phone you said you didn't, but are you sure you didn't hit something? Man shrugged. Don't know. Didn't notice anything until it started riding rough. You brought the replacement tire? Yeah, I'll have it on in a minute. I glanced back toward the rear of the truck. You don't have a spare you'd rather me put on, do you? He frowned. Spare's rotten. That's why I called you. He glanced into the darkened interior of his truck's cab. Hurry it up if you can. I got a bit of an emergency going on. Offering smile, I nodded. Sure, sorry, I'll get right on it. I had the car jacked and was removing the last of the lugs when I heard a squeal of static of mummy from inside the man's cab. As I glanced up, Trimble yanked open the door and fumbled for something inside. Hello, hello? Are you there? I was curious, but I didn't want to be nosy either, so I pulled off the wheel and carried it back to my truck. I could hear something over the radio, but at a distance it was hard to make out anything more than a loud cracking whine that faded in and out. Looking back toward Trimble, I saw the man was half in and half out of his truck, his face dimly lit by the front panel of what looked like a CB radio mounted on his dash. As I watched, he brought the handset up to his face, his voice tight with tension and frustration as he spoke. I'm trying, goddammit. I'm getting my tire fixed and I'll be back on the road. Taking a deep breath, he went on, his voice calmer. I... 
I know you're scared. Just, have you thought of anything else you saw or heard? Any landmarks or something else? Let me know exactly where. Another squeal of static and Trimble fell silent as he listened. I wish I was closer so I could make out what the other person was saying, but all I could hear was the rhythm of noise as the man nodded to himself. Okay, okay. Shit, I'm close to that now. I... He glanced out of the windshield and turned back to look at me. Wait a minute. I have an idea. Just... I'll be there soon. He dropped the handset and he stood up, his eyes wide, his jaw clenched as he stepped toward me with his hands out. Look, I need to tell you something. Ask you something. I stepped back from the wheel, but kept the pry bar I was using in my left hand. Okay, what's up? He glanced toward his truck and then back to me. I could see a sheen of sweat glistening on his forehead now. That... I've been talking to this lady tonight. On the CB. I nodded, wondering where this was going. What was his deal then? He's running around on the sly or something? Okay. He took another step forward. This lady... She's trapped somewhere. Someone took her and put her somewhere, but she found a CB radio and I got her to work. But driving toward the area she described for the last hour, but I wasn't sure where she was. She can't get out where she's at, but she's been looking out the windows of the place, trying to see what she could do in the dark. Trimble pointed up toward the night sky. But the moon's out now, and she just told me there's a big silo she can see. A big silo next to a little shed down the hill from the cinder block building she's in. I'm pretty sure I know the place now. I frowned slightly. So you're saying this lady's been kidnapped or something? When he nodded, I went on. Did you call the cops? Trimble shook his head. No, I didn't. Maybe I should have, but at first, I halfway thought it was a joke. I was on the way home when I first heard her on the radio. The more she talked, the more I thought I knew where she was talking about, and the more I believed her. Hell, I should have called then, but what can I tell them? And how long would it take for them to find her? She's alone for now, but she's terrified about that fella that took her coming back. I thought if I could figure out where she was and then call, I would save time, but... Then my damn tire blew. Shifting uncomfortably, I nodded toward the wheel. Well, give me another five or ten minutes and you'll be on your way and... Trimble shook his head as he broke in. No, you don't understand. This place is close, walking close, but I... I don't know what I'll be walking into or if I'll need help getting her out. I think she's hurt and she may need to be carried. What I was going to ask is, will you go with me to look? He raised his hand as I started to respond. I know you don't know me, but I swear I'm not a bad fella. I'm not trying to trick you or rob you or something. Hell, you look like you could whip me if it came to it anyway. I eyed the man uneasily. Let's just call the cops and... There's no time. Closest cops are probably 30 minutes away. This place I'm thinking of is 10, maybe 15 away on foot. If we go now, we can get her out before she gets in worse trouble. I'm going with or without you, but I'm taking the time to ask because it'll be easier with two and... Well, I'm more than a little scared if I'm honest. His bottom lip trembled slightly as he met my eyes. Please, mister. Pete, Pete, please help me help this lady if we can.
ignoring the pit in my stomach. I nodded. I made Trimble walk in front of me as we traveled through the dark. We each had flashlights, but it did little to cut through the shadowy shapes growing in the fields and thickets we crossed. The moon had gone back behind another cloud, and the weight of the night was oppressive as I followed the strange man deeper into the countryside. He was a strange man, and not just because of the story he had told. Part of it was how he moved. Standing against the truck, he'd seemed fairly strong and able. But as we walked, I noticed he had an odd, stooped gait, as though he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders and was growing tired of the load. But there was something else, too. He seemed oddly familiar to me. Not like I knew him exactly, but like I'd seen him before. Like, maybe we should be getting closer now. Just over the next hill to the right, I think. He pointed his flashlight back as he glanced at me for a moment, the reflected light showing the naked fear in his eyes. It's an old hunt house or something, I think. Never been inside, but I've seen it years ago. I nodded. Okay. We started back to walking, but that new glimpse of his face just made my stomach tighten further. Hey, have I met you before? He seemed to slow for a second, and then, leaning forward more, he went on at a quicker pace. No, I don't think so. I think I'd remember. I swallowed, my throat suddenly dry and tight. I just... Maybe you've been in the store before? It's just you knew we had the tire in stock, and you look pretty familiar. A long silence stretched between us, punctuated only by the crunching of dead scrub grass at our feet and the distant rustling of some trees as we crested the hill. Timble suddenly stopped, and I thought he was going to turn and respond, but instead he just pointed to a lump of a shadow down the hill as he let out a rough whisper. There, that's it. Let's go. My heart was beating faster now eyes looking into every shadow for the boogeyman that had supposedly taken this poor lady. But what if that was a lie? Or what if it was true, but Trimble was the one who had taken her, some maniac that was abducting people dumb enough to simply follow him out into the woods? I tightened my grip on the pry bar. He'd been right, though. I was 20 years younger and 40 pounds heavier than him, so as long as I kept him in front of me, he'd have a hell of a time pulling anything and I didn't know that he was lying anyway. The story sounded strange, but these kinds of stories always did, didn't they? Could I risk not helping just because I was too chicken shit to go out in the dark with a stranger? Keeping my eyes ahead on Trimble, I dug my phone out of my pocket. I was going to see this through, but I was calling the cops before we went in there. There's no telling what we might find, and if Trimble was up to something, I'd rather find out now, rather than once I was inside an unfamiliar building with him. Holding up my phone, I swiped open the screen and dialed 911 before lifting the phone to my ear. No dial tone, and after a few seconds, a double beep. I knew that fucking beep. Looking back at my screen confirmed it. No signal found. Idiot. I'd waited too long, and now I was... What are you doing? I glanced up to see Trimble staring at me. I I was just going to try and call the cops since we're here now. He stared at the phone and then at me. Any luck? I shook my head. No service this far out. 
Trimble nodded before continuing to whisper. Figures. He pointed toward the dark outline of the building less than 50 feet away now. Let's look around before we go inside. I think maybe there's only one door, but better to see before we try to get in. Turning off his light, he leaned closer, his voice trembling. I'd kill the light for two now. We, we don't have any way of knowing where this guy might be. Shit, this guy was terrified. It simultaneously made me feel better about him and more scared of everything around us. If this was all real, we needed to hurry. Sticking together, we circled the cinder block rectangle, studying it in the patchy moonlight that came and went as we crept through the shadow of the nearby trees. The wind kicked up again, rattling bare branches as a shudder went up my spine. We were back near where we had started, and he'd been right. One door and two dark windows. I went to ask him how we should go in, but Trimble was already moving toward the door, and by the time I caught up, he'd twisted the knob and entered, turning on his flashlight again. I hit the button on mine as I stepped through the threshold. I'd expected to see furniture, maybe a stove or some hunting supplies, but there was none of that. Just a bare, dirty concrete floor broken down the middle, a black hole leading down into some kind of dugout basement or tunnel. My eyes followed my flashlight's beam as I did a second pass at the room. Where's... Where's the ri- Trimble grabbed my arm tightly. Do you hear her? I froze as I realized... I did hear something. At first the sound was faint and warbling, more like water or fingers running over glass, but as I listened it changed or I could hear it better. It was a woman, weakly calling for help from down in the dark below the concrete floor. Squeezing my arm, Trimble began walking down the slope of the broken floor and I followed, my pace matching and then passing his as the woman's voice grew clearer. She was clearly in pain and terrified and we needed to help her. And if the fucker that had her was down here, then God help him. Teeth gritted. I raised the pry bar as I turned the corner a foot below the cinder block building up above. I could still hear Trimble behind me, but I didn't care anymore if he helped or not. My flashlight was already tracing the first outlines of a body chained down with stakes and what was... Pain exploded in the back of my head as everything fell to darkness. When I woke up, I was laying on my side, hands and feet bound behind me. Trimble sat a few feet away, watching me quietly until he noticed I was awake. My first panicked thought was that I'd been right. He trapped this lady down here and now had me too. Where was she? My eyes lit on the figure laying between us, wrapped in dirty linen and bound by fine silvery chains tied to stake heads all along the body. Only the head was bare, and it was a lady, but her skin was pallid and gray, with lips that had been shrived or removed some long time before. As though appreciating my need to see, Trimble took out one of the flashlights and shined it over her face more fully. The rest of her face was strangely beautiful, but in a terrible way. There was no question she was long dead, and the ruin of her mouth with its black gleaming teeth only made the delicate grace of her other features more horrible. Trimble let out a low chuckle above me. 
I know that look. I know it well. He gave me a nasty grin as he squatted down, stumbling with a grunt before catching himself. Grimacing, he pulled a pair of pliers out of his back pocket. Look, I don't know what this is, but please, just let me go. Don't kill me. Trimble frowned. Not going to kill you, idiot. I'm going to give you something. Pass along a gift. Not going to kill you, idiots. I'm giving you something. Pass along a gift, if you want to look at it like that. Turning away, he reached forward to gently ease open the dead woman's mouth. He paused a moment, shaking his head and puffed out a breath. Hell, even now it's hard to do. He glanced at me again. Hard to give up. You'll see what I mean. Shaking his head again, he gripped one of the body's black teeth with the pliers and gave it a tug, grunting with effort as it finally came loose. As he stood up and turned to me, I started to beg again, but he ignored me. When he straddled me, I tried to thrash and throw him off, but it was no use. He put his knees on my shoulders and then eased the pliers down toward my face, the jagged black tooth he held suspended above my head for a moment before he drove it down into my skull. The world went black again, and when it came back, it was only in flashes. I remember seeing Trimble against the far dirt wall, vomiting up something dark before slumping back with a wet grin. I remember him untying me and saying that for what it's worth, he was sorry. I remember waking up a few feet outside of the building, the chill of the morning dew making my whole body shudder as I sat up and felt my head. There was no mark there, or anywhere, as though it had all been a dream. Standing up shakily, I went to the building and tried the door. It opened easily, and in the red morning light, I could see that the split in the floor had been filled in with white sand while I was unconscious. Bending down, I picked up a handful and looked at it blearily. No, not sand. Salt. It took me nearly an hour, but I found my way back to my truck eventually. It was just as I'd left it, aside from Trimble's wheel, which was gone along with any other sign of the man. I thought about calling the police or going to a hospital, but I didn't know what I'd say or what good it would do. At most, I could carry them to a long, dead, buried body in a hole under hundreds of pounds of salt, but after I told them everything, would the cops suspect anyone else but me of whatever had been done to her? No, I needed to go home and rest, get my head straight, and then decide what to tell, if anything. That's what I did. When I made it home, I fell into bed and slept for 12 hours, waking up in the evening with a headache and a dim, numb hopefulness that it had all been a dream. I guzzled water and ate some lunch meat out of the fridge before going back, and by the next morning, I was feeling almost normal again. Real or not, it was behind me, and I needed to let it stay there. It was as I was walking into the work the next day that I first noticed the footsteps behind me. Soft and delicate, the whisper of skin padding lightly on concrete just behind my own feet. I spun around expecting to see a customer coming in the store, but no one was there. Throughout the day I kept hearing it, footsteps following me wherever I went, but when I would turn, there was nothing there. By that afternoon it was all I could think about, and I left work early to get some fresh air and clear my head. I walked down the sidewalk to the center of town, listened closely for the ghost steps behind me. 
They were always there, changing with mine depending on whether I was on pavement or asphalt, dirt or grass. By the time I made it to the back of the library, I was leaning against the building trying to catch my breath. Either I was going insane, or something was following me, stalking me. Just then, I felt a small, firm hand on my shoulder, the cold of it cutting through the cloth of my t-shirt as its twin gripped me on the other side. I jerked away from the wall, almost falling backward at the unexpected weight bearing down on me. Pinwheeling my arms, I stumbled back a step as I felt something wrap around my waist, a pair of freezing legs holding me tight. I let out a scream as I looked down, reaching for the legs at first and then the hands digging into my shoulders, but there was nothing there. She was on me. Oh god, she was on me now. I couldn't see her or touch her, but I could still feel her, that impossible weight bearing down on me no matter where I went or what I tried. And I could still hear her, whispering with that raspy voice that terrifies and excites me when it blossoms in my ear. Weeping gently as she warns me how terrible it is to be alone in the dark. Softly rumbling as she purrs how much she needs me, loves me, telling me so many terrible and wonderful impossible things, all while promising one thing, one truth above all else. She'll never, ever let me go. Five figures with animal masks are standing just outside my friend's house. Each of them looks to be holding some type of long, pointed object. They've been standing there for damn near an hour, and with her neighbors out of town, I'm honestly really stressed out. I asked her if she knew those people, but she wouldn't give me a straight answer. It's none of your business. Just hide, she said. How is it none of my business if you're asking me to hide? I shot back. Who are those people? Why are they here? She sat in silence before she disappeared for a moment, then came back with a fucking gun. Hide, she stated. The look on her face indicating that it wasn't really my place to argue. She took me to the basement where I was made to get into a secret compartment and essentially stay until God knows when. That's when I started writing this. Whatever's happening, I want my friends and family to know what my last few hours were like. If this all ends up being as bad as I get the feeling it'll be. About 20 minutes into this whole ordeal, she called the cops and said there was a disturbance outside. She commented about a family dispute going on outside. It seemed like a man was acting violently towards his family. I questioned why she didn't just say it looked like a group of people were casing the house, but she motioned for me to be quiet. Another 20 minutes go by and we hear police sirens. Relief, right? Well, no. Since we heard the police pull up, they hadn't attempted to connect with us to wrap things up or get a statement, and from what I last saw, the squad car was still outside. I don't want to think the worst, but it's hard not to put two and two together. And if they're willing to hurt a cop, or rather if they're able to hurt a cop, what does that mean for us? Damn it, I wish she would tell me what's going on. 
doesn't make any sense. Carla is such a sweet woman. She always has a smile on her face, never had a bad thing to say about anyone, and generally seems to have a pretty laid-back disposition. My brain is racing, trying to figure out what she could have possibly gotten into. Another half hour has gone by. Carla came back real quick to tell me that the group was gone, and so was the police car. I asked if that meant I could leave, but she shook her head and said that if anything, it was more dangerous than ever. Those people could be anywhere now, and an enemy you can't see is far worse than one you have directly in your sights. I really just want to go home. Carla and I got into another argument. She decided to stay down here to comfort me when she saw how shaken I was, but I couldn't help but be furious with her. After being friends for three years, you'd think she'd have the courtesy to at least tell me that she'd gotten involved in some shit before inviting me over. I did get some information, though, or at least I've been able to eliminate some things. From what Carla told me, she's not involved in drugs, so that's a relief. I was able to scratch owing people money, gangs, and someone holding a garage off the list. But frankly, I don't know where that leaves us. All Carla felt comfortable saying was that it was a group of quote-unquote dedicated believers, and she'd left it at that. Believers in what? Fuck, someone shot through the window. Carla went upstairs to check on the damage, and she found a note attached to a brick. All it said was, Natura non contristator. From a quick Google search, I think it means something like nature is not concerned. Carla seemed really shaken by that. I tried to comfort her, but she just shrugged me off and muttered something about how she should have stayed. She looked me in the eyes and told me how truly sorry she was, and that if I made it home, I should just do my best to forget about her. I've been avoiding texting my friends and family about where I am in fear that they'll get hurt, but now I'm seriously considering it. At this point, I feel like I'm just waiting to die, and sitting for hours thinking about your own mortality is a horrible, goddamn experience. Every sound from upstairs could be them. Every movement I make might be being tracked. I want to leave so badly, but I don't know what waits for me on the other side of that door. At the same time, maybe it's worth it to try. Maybe they don't want me. I wonder how possible is that they'd let me go if they got Carla. God, the fact that I even think that scares me. I asked Carla if we should call the police again, but she strongly opposed it. She said something about how they were prepared to die, and a shootout would just end up in us getting killed anyway. As soon as they saw the police arrive, they'd come in and gut us like fish. This scares me. If what she's saying is true, then that means they already know where we are. So what's the point of waiting, then? Are they doing this just to fuck with us? Do they want to see us break first? Because I'm damn close. If they think this is okay to do, then they're sicker than I thought. I think someone is dead upstairs. I heard a pained screaming and people shouting multiple times to hold him down. One gunshot and... Gone. I'm in shock. I don't know who decided to come by, but I feel like a coward for not helping them. 
I could have run up there when I heard the screaming, right? Two or three on five? It's not terrible odds. We could have done something. I tell myself that, but I know the truth. The truth is, I couldn't have and never would have done anything. I hear pounding on the basement door. Carla noticed it too. I think they're tired of waiting. I'm posting this right now just in case the police find my body and don't share this with everyone that it needs to be sent to. To all my friends and family, just know that I love you. Know that I'm at peace with the coming end and that I promise if I die, I'll die fighting with all of you on my mind. Carla looks determined. She's already gotten into position with the gun pointed towards the door. I don't know what will happen next. My only wish is that I never would have had to find out. My name is Harold. I'm 83 years old. For some damn reason or another, my daughter felt it was a good idea just to lock me away in this assisted living home. Says that I'm incapable of taking care of myself and I'm senile. Whatever the hell that means. Which bullshit if you ask me. I had no choice but to leave my home of 57 years. I retired about 10 years ago. Maybe 12. Not exactly sure. Anyway, bottom line is my money ran out. It was never one to deposit into a 401k. Never like the thought of someone else playing around with my hard-earned money. Hell, I even refused to let banks play around with my money. Taken from me, nothing but a bunch of damn crooks, a lot of them. So, if I won't let people take care of my money, why would I trust random strangers to take care of me? My daughter drove me to this place two weeks ago. It was a silent car ride. I had nothing to say to her, and I figured she didn't have anything to say to me. When we pulled up to the assisted living place, she walked into the front office where we were greeted by this rather large woman. I remember she smelled like old cheese, and her name was Tracy. I was pretty pissed off at the situation, so I probably was pretty sure with my answers when she asked me about myself. Nothing I hate worse than someone pretending to give a damn about you. After filling out some paperwork, Tracy said she wanted to show me around. She wanted me to know where the pool and activity center was. All I wanted to know was where I'd be staying and where the nearest bar was. I needed a drink after being betrayed by my own daughter. Guess what? There's no bar in this miserable place where they stick their loved ones to die. After everything was settled, Tracy wanted to take me to my apartment so I could have some privacy and explore all the great amenities this place has to offer. My daughter said rather rushed goodbyes, probably in a rush to leave me. Out of sight, out of mind, I guess. Once in my apartment, I locked the door, looked around. One bedroom, one bathroom, and a tiny living room. This place is barely better than a low-rent hotel. Locked myself in the apartment for six days, wanting nothing to do with the people or the amenities. At the start of the seventh day, I heard a knock on my front door. It was a rather lovely woman. She had a red dress. Didn't look a day over fifty. Well, hello there, young lady, I said as I opened the door. 
She smiled and told me that her name was Helen and she lived next door. She knew that someone had moved in, but she never saw me come out, so she figured she'd stop in and make introductions. She told me to let her know if I ever needed anything, because she'd been living there for two years and knew everything about everything. Over the next few days, I found myself shaving again, showering regularly, and waiting for a chance to talk to Helen again. My wife passed six years ago from lung cancer, and I was feeling a little lonely. Even to just have a friend in this place would be nice, and who better to buddy up than a young, attractive woman living right next door. Finally, two days ago, I saw Helen again. I approached her at the pool. Even in her one-piece bathing suit, she looked ravishing. I sat down at a pool chair next to her and tried to make small talk. She didn't seem to recognize me. She said, Who are you? Rather rudely. I'm your neighbor, Harold. I told her, pretty confused. She seemed like she was scared a little and said that no, I definitely was not her neighbor. Her only neighbor was Miss Sherry and that I should stay away from her. Confused, I walked away and made my way back to my apartment. That night, I was sitting in my chair watching an old western on the TV set when I heard a soft tap on my door. I got up, walked over to the door, curious as to who the hell was knocking at my door at 8.30 in the evening. I opened the door hard and fast, hoping to relay the message that it was not reasonable house-fitting at this hour. No one was there. I poked my head out of the door to see if I could catch whoever had just knocked on my door, intent on giving them a piece of my mind, when I noticed that Helen's door had just closed. It was soft and slow, like someone was peeking through the crack, trying to avoid being caught. A little irritated, I walked over to her door, noticing that the hall light was flickering. I knocked on her door. No answer. I knocked again, raising my voice to say, I know you're in there. I just saw you shut your door. Still, she didn't reply. I yelled through her door to please stop playing around. I went back to my apartment, making a mental note to let the maintenance guys know to change that bulb in the hallway. I was sitting back in my chair, dozing off to a game show, when I heard someone pound on my door really loud, startling me out of my half-sleep. I jumped up out of the chair and thundered to the door, anxious to give Helen a piece of my mind. I opened the door, but who or what I saw wasn't Helen. It was a tall man in a big green robe, hood up. He stood there staring at me. I couldn't see his face, but I was pissed and not really fully awake, so I yelled at him not to be knocking on my door, and that if he did it again, things would get ugly. He didn't respond. He just raised his hand and pointed straight at my face. We stood staring at each other for what seemed like a long time. He still had his finger raised at me. I said nothing. I wasn't sure what to say. He was starting to give me the creep, so I slammed the door as fast as I could, locking all three locks. The next morning I learned that Helen had passed in the night. It didn't make sense to me. She seemed healthy and full of life, but as I watched her being carted out of her apartment, she looked like a cancer patient after months of chemotherapy and radiation treatments. She was a shell of the Helen that I'd met only days ago. Something was wrong. First the weird knocking and the green-robed guy, and now Helen dying like that. I started asking around to a few other people who lived there, but nobody would talk about this hooded figure. They went so far as to ignore me. 
No, they weren't ignoring me. They seemed as if they didn't even realize I was there. Looking around, I started noticing that nobody was talking to each other. There were people all around me, but none of them acted right. No laughs or conversations going on. None of these people looked alive. They all looked like living zombies on autopilot. How did I not notice this before? Was I really so pissed off at being here that I failed to notice that something wasn't right? I made my way back to my apartment, avoiding these zombie people. I was going to get out of here. Once in my room, my door locked. I picked up the phone and dialed my daughter's number. Raising the phone to my ear, all there was was static. I tried three more times before giving up. That was yesterday. And now I'm sitting on my bed writing to you. Someone has been pounding on my door for the last 20 minutes, and my front door just opened. I was born on October 27, 2001, 18 years ago today. I was brought into this world in one of the delivery rooms at Empire General Hospital, my grandparents standing close by in a waiting room as my mother struggled alone in labor. It wasn't supposed to be that way, of course, her alone with doctors and nurses who really didn't know her or care. My father had planned to be there as well, holding her hand and talking to her as I was being born. But three days earlier... On October 24th, he had disappeared. The ghost of my father haunted my entire childhood. I could feel him when I looked into my mother's sad and weary eyes or when my grandmother stopped talking when I walked into the room. I was reminded of it every fall when my mother would go out on the weekends to hand out flyers and talk to all the local agencies to see if there had been any new word. Because my father was never found. Truth be told, he could be happy living across the country or two counties over. My mother never believed that. She always maintained a resolve that he wouldn't have left us willingly and that somewhere, somehow, he might still be alive. I never asked my mother why she focused most of her efforts on finding him in October of every year. I think on some level I assumed that she was sadder, close to the time he went missing, and it drove her to try again despite the passage of time and the shrinking likelihood that there would be any new developments. Maybe that's all it was. Or maybe she had such a connection with my father that she somehow sensed that the days leading up to Halloween were different somehow. I never did get to ask her. She was diagnosed with late-stage pancreatic cancer in the spring of last year, and within a few months, she'd passed away. I live with my grandparents now, and while the last year has been very hard, in some ways it's a relief, too. The idea that my mother may finally be at peace, may even be with my father again, well, it's helped me through a lot. And though I hate to admit it, finally being free of the shadow of his absence makes me feel lighter and freer somehow. And then, I found a birthday gift waiting for me early this morning at our front door. 
It was a brightly wrapped package with a handmade bow expertly tied around it. And when I picked it up, I heard something shift slightly inside. I was curious and a little excited as I brought it back in. I had been about to go for a sunrise run around my grandparents' neighborhood, but this surprise gift had banished any other plans at the moment. I saw from a small gift tag next to the bow that it was definitely for me, but who it was from or what it could be, I didn't have the slightest idea. I gently slid off the ribbon and tore away the paper, and inside was a small gray metal box with a brass push-button latch. When I opened it, all that was inside was a USB drive. The oddness of it all was starting to cool my excitement, but I was still curious to find out what it could be. Maybe a funny video or some pictures of one of my friends? A weird gift from my grandparents that were trying to give me something they thought I'd like? I went up to my room and got to my laptop, opened up the USB drive, and saw that there were 18 large video files there. Something stirred uneasily in the back of my brain. What was this? Holding my breath, I clicked on the first file. It was my father. I'd never met him, but I'd seen enough pictures of him over the years from albums and flyers to recognize him in an instant. And he looked the same as he did in those earlier pictures. Young, strong, and kind. I felt my vision begin to waver with tears, but then a thought occurred to me. How was this even possible? The footage wasn't from some old home movie. It was a video of him riding a bike down a quiet street. First off, who would have taken the video and why? Secondly, how could it be of such good quality? Did they even have digital cameras in 2001? And even if they did, I was pretty sure they didn't have video that was this high res. But still, here it was. Here he was. He was turning into a place that I recognized as Murphy Park on the north side of town. Inexplicably, the video continued to follow him, though he never seemed to notice, and I couldn't understand how any of it was being recorded like this at all. He rode his bike through the park until finally stopping at one of the park benches. Getting off his bike, he pulled what looked like a thick black envelope from his pack and stuck it under the bench. Looking around for a moment, he got back on his bike and rode on. I recognized the path he was taking. It looked like he was headed back to the west side of town, to the area we lived when I was little. Maybe he was headed home. But then there was a buzz, and he slowed to a stop, pulled out a red thing that looked like one of those old Nokia phones. The video wasn't close enough to see what the phone said, but I could tell he was reading something on it and frowning. He looked up thoughtfully at the way he was heading, a path that led back to us, and then he turned around. He rode toward the center of town, finally coming to a stop outside of an old building that I recognized. It was closed now, but up until a few years ago it had been a post office. The thing is, it looked different in the video somehow, not just because it was 18 years younger. I paused the video and studied it for a moment, looking at my father's frozen form as he walked toward... the alley. In the video, there was a large alley separating the right side of the building and the next building, a furniture store that had been around for over 50 years and was still open today. The thing is, that alley 
doesn't exist. I've grown up in Empire. I've been down that street a thousand times, and there is no fucking alley there. But as I started the video back, my father walked into it. As always, the ghost videographer followed him, the view showing him glancing around before seeming to find what he was looking for. A small red box attached to the wall halfway down the alley. Maybe it was where his payment had been left for the delivery. Or maybe it was something else entirely. I don't know, and a moment later the question left my mind as I realized something has changed. Everything was quiet. The whir of his bike's wheels, the ratcheting click of him changing gears, the sound of the cars and peoples and birds. They'd all been there. Now, from one step to the next, everything had fallen silent. My first thought was that the audio had just cut out or ended, but then I realized I could still faintly hear sounds from the street outside of that alleyway. It was only my father's place in the world that had gone quiet. He noticed it too. He looked inside the red box, but either it was empty or he was too distracted to take what was inside, and he left the box's top flap closed as he began rubbing his ears and snapping his fingers. He was clearly getting scared, maybe thinking that he'd suddenly gone deaf, but then I saw him look back toward the street. He could hear things from out there, too. He ran back out to the street, looking around with some relief for a moment before he paused his expression growing concerned again. He snapped his fingers, but there was no sound. He clapped his hands next to his ears, but the video gave the gesture no noise. And I could tell he didn't hear it either. After several more tries, he got back on his bike and started to ride again, only to stop after a few feet. He was thinking the same thing I was. The bike no longer made noise either. When he started to ride again, he was moving far faster than I'd seen him go before. He shot across town and back to my childhood neighborhood, running up the steps to our house before barreling through the front door. He was clearly terrified, and he, as he entered the house, he was yelling, or at least that's what it looked like, though again, there was no sound. He found my mother younger than seemed possible and nine months pregnant with me, sitting in the living room watching television. She didn't look up when he called to her silently, didn't stir when he drew closer and tried to get her attention. He reached out to touch her, but his hands just slid away as though there was some impassable membrane between them that he just couldn't breach. He tried to turn off the television, knock over a table, anything, but every time he would somehow glide past the surface of the world, everything just out of reach. The video ended with him on the floor weeping, utterly alone, as he sat five feet from the family I would never see him again. I was in shock after the first video, but in a way that helped me keep going, keep clicking on the second and third and fourth. The rest were all much shorter, ten to fifteen minute clips that seemed to be roughly a year apart judging from my age and surroundings. I couldn't say for sure, but I guess the videos were showing every October for the last 18 years. What I do know is that my father is in all of them, watching my mother and I. In the second video, he seemed to talk a lot, though I still couldn't hear him. In the third, he talked less, spending most of his time just watching us. 
By the final one, which I recognized as from last year, he wasn't talking anymore. He hadn't aged or changed over all those videos, but he still somehow looked ancient. There was a dead look in his eyes, and as he looked at me and my grandparents as though he was staring at memories of a life he no longer really remembered. There was a long moment toward the end of the video where he turned to stare at whoever or whatever was recording all this. There was a momentary flash of recognition, of fear, and then the scene shifted again. It was showing the street where he'd gone that day, the alleyway that didn't exist. Cars passed by, people walked down the sidewalk, all oblivious to the dark hole that lay waiting just a few steps away. The video continued to show this scene for over two minutes before ending abruptly with no explanation. Maybe it was a warning, or maybe it was an invitation. I guess you could say I'm a bit of a junker. My office closet is filled with boxes upon boxes of old computer parts. I've been a PC builder since the Windows 95 era and never let up on my hobby. This allowed me to collect a fairly large stock of parts. If I'm ever out and about shopping and see a good deal on an old used PC, I snatch it up immediately. This is what happened to start off a set of events I won't forget anytime soon. In browsing the wares at a local pawn shop, something caught my eye at the end of one particular aisle. I made my way through the 20 to 30 weed whackers that lined each side of the aisleway. Apparently, once winter hit, it's time to pay off a few debts with said items. Once at the end of that aisle, I pushed several items out of the way in the bottom shelf to reveal an old, dirty, beat-up PC tower. It was one of those old, plain-Jane white computer towers that was obviously owned by a smoker, as it had a yellowish hue to the color. Well, 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 what do we have here? I said to myself in a sarcastic tone. I grinned at the thought of what I could find once I dissected. I bought the dirty tower up to the employee at the register. The item didn't have a price tag, and fighting the urge to ask the employee if that meant it was free, I inquired about how much it was. How much is it going to send me back? I asked, wiping my hands on my jeans from the gunky case. After a squinty-eyed examination of the item, he looked up to me. One of the reasons I was ecstatic that the hard drive worked was that's really the only component I get really excited to test. I get a bit of a thrill browsing through old files and pictures. Even music that was probably pirated off Napster, one of those old peer-to-peer -peer sharing programs. It's almost like peering into the past and looking at how life was back then in their family photos. Old games they used to play and music of the time. Admittedly, I would find folders full of porn as well. Sometimes I found a side of a certain person that I didn't want to see, judging from the content of their videos. Some people are twisted. My curiosity increased as I hit the hard drive button. The obvious files were shown with all the Windows folders, my pictures, my music, and the such. I slumped my shoulders in disappointment that as I discovered, all the files were empty. It was almost as if someone installed Windows and then did nothing. Well, that was worth it, I said to myself as I sat back in my chair. 
After several seconds of staring at the screen while holding the mouse, I realized there was one folder I hadn't tried. My documents. I double-clicked the shortcut and opened the file to show another file. This file was labeled Documents, clearly made by the previous user. I ended up clicking through three more subfolders that was clearly a lazy attempt to hide something, probably their adult entertainment folder. As I reached the last folder, I don't know if disappointed was the right word, I only had one lonely file looking back at me. My sins dot doc. A doc is simply a word file used in a lot of businesses for memos, school reports, and so on. Normally, I would have been a little bummed out not to find something a little more exciting, but the title piqued my interest. I opened it. What was presented in front of me was, as you'll discover shortly, a kind of diary, except in list form. Sounds confusing, I know, and trust me, it's equally confusing to describe. Each sentence was quick and to the point of what this person did that particular day. I suppose a log would more accurately describe it, but it was a little more personal. The formatting of this diary was the most interesting part, though. Not in the least. It's what was said. It's what this person did on these particular days and decided to log it here. She made the mistake of dumping me. I had the last laugh when I dumped her back right into the river. The girl said she wants an adventure. I took her to the woods, gave her a head start. The hunt was good, but I made my kill. I hope she liked her adventure. That's your girlfriend? Nobody talks to me like that. I followed them home. She didn't even budge out of her sleep as I slowly pierced her throat very slowly. I didn't realize how long it takes for someone to suffocate. I didn't have to kill that jogger. I didn't even plan it. She was just... there. My jaw dropped and my eyes wide open in shock at what I was reading. Could this be a joke? Or... Could I really be reading the ramblings of a serial killer? I liked this one. Kept her for a few days. I would have kept her longer, but I wanted to see how long she could last as I chopped off a few fingers and toes each day. It wasn't as long as I thought. This one was an accident. He bumped into me first, but his head hit the brick wall. I accidentally slammed his head onto the same brick wall repeatedly. The human skull is surprisingly easy to open. I stopped reading. I could tell the murders, the sins of this monster were going to get more and more gruesome. I slid my chair back and stood up, putting both my hands on my head to hopefully get more air into my lungs. What the hell is this? I murmured to myself as I paced my room. I stood, staring at my computer screen from across the room, wondering if I should resume my reading of the psycho's memoirs. I don't know why, but I did. Police came to ask me if I knew anything about a husband and wife's disappearance. Their ineptness showed no bounds as I jokingly told them they were in my basement tied up. They told me not to joke like that. 
I think the husband will go first. I've always wondered what castration was like. I waited for him by the river. The old man was on the brink of death anyway. He laughed in delight at the irony of me pulling him with his own fishing pole to the river. I gasped in horror. This couldn't be. My grandfather went missing on a fishing trip in 1996. Slim chance I know, but the idea that this killer could be responsible for my grandfather's death sent me into an extreme frightened state. It took me a full minute to come to my senses. I let out a heavy exhale and continued. Don't ask me why, but I did. The entries went on for page after page. This could be some sick person just writing out his fantasies and I'm getting worked up over nothing. This thought filled my mind as I pursued more and more of these sick stories. That thought ended up being false. About five pages in, this person began pasting photos into the documents. Photos of his victims. I held my hand over my mouth in horror as I saw the gruesome death scenes in front of me. I couldn't take any more. I stood up right ahead of the police station with the hard drive. Something caught my eye. In one of those pictures, it was my house. It was my childhood house in the background. The victim lay bloody and bashed on the ground, but in the distance through the trees, you could see the distinct second-level patio my dad built. The paneling on the side of the house was exactly the same. The windows were in the same spot. It was definitely my house. I begrudgingly scrolled through more photos, trying not to read the killer's little captions on what happened. I needed to find more evidence that this was happening in my neighborhood. I found it. My elementary school filled the photo. Children were playing. No brutal death scene, just children playing on the playground caption on the particular photo chilled me to the bone. Next. This psychopath was contemplating the brutal murder of children. I felt a tear roll down my cheek. I remember news reports of a spike in child kidnappings one particular year. Could this have been caused by the owner of this hard drive? I have to know. Daylight was ending fast. I quickly ran to my car to begin a trip I wasn't sure I wish should make. Familiarity set in as I arrived in my old neighborhood where my parents still lived. I wasn't here for a visit, though. I parked my car on the side of the street and began walking, walking to the spot I saw my house in the ghostly photo from. As dusk approached, I found it. It was the exact spot I saw the picture, except no evidence anything had ever happened there. I don't know what I was expecting to find, except trees and now overgrown bushes, but I now knew I wasn't wrong about the location. As it got darker, I began mindlessly walking around the area. I was contemplating what to do next. Obviously, I had to report it to the police, but I needed a moment to recollect my thoughts.
I was stopped suddenly at realizing that there was something directly in front of me. Covered in overgrown branches was a tiny shack. And when I say tiny, I mean that thing could have passed for an outhouse. I looked behind me, realizing I'd walked a lot further than I thought. Civilization was nowhere in sight. I began to walk back from where I came, but my dumb brain kicked in and my curiosity beckoned me out to the shack. I brushed away several droopy branches that covered the front door as I clicked on the flashlight. I tried looking through the wood panels of the door to see if I could get a preview of what's inside. As I opened the door, I was greeted with the sight of what can only be described as a hunter's shack. A large hunting knife laid on a shelf, two curved meat hooks hung in the corner. I couldn't tell if the discoloration on the blades was from rust or from blood. Did I just find the killer stash? With my jaw dropped, I slowly panned the entirety of the structure. A flicker of light from a small reflective surface caught my eye. I shifted my head back and forth to get another glimpse of what I just saw. As the now-developing moonlight hit the surface again, I crouched down. I dug through a small pile of rags to retrieve the item that almost seemed to be calling to me. I found it. It was an old beat-up camera. The tiny lens from the camera offered a reflection of the moon behind me. The old tech of this camera would have been laughable if I was in the mood. I pushed the power button. Nothing. Obviously, there'd been no charge of this thing after all this time. I turned the camera over and let out a scoff. Double-A batteries, I said to myself with a smirk, shaking my head. I quickly set the camera down and began disassembling my flashlight. I was in luck as the flashlight housed several double-A's. I hastily transferred the batteries to the camera and hit on the switch. I was almost yet again disappointed as it did nothing. A few seconds passed and I moved to open the battery compartment again. The tiny LED screen on the camera flickered to life. It was working. After a quick browse of the operating system in this ancient camera, I was able to find the photo gallery. I remember backing up to one of the shelves that was displayed in the tiny screen in front of me was more death. More and more pictures, similar to what I'd found on that doc file. Everything connected. Moonlight was the only thing that lit my path as I ran. It felt like forever before I finally made it back to the scene of the murder by my house. I quickly jumped in my car and made my way to my parents' house. I screeched to a halt in their driveway, jumped out of my car with the engine still running, began pounding on my parents' door. Hold on! I heard my dad's voice yell from the other side. I began calming down as my dad slowly opened the door. Dad, Dad, I have to show you something I found. I yelped, catching my breath. My dad looked down at my hands and gazed toward the old camera I was holding. A toothy grin came across his face as he said, Wow, <laughs> I haven't seen that thing in years. 